So Aaron with Sunbelt Rentals. Where are you from, man? Oh, a little bit all over. Uh, started out in the hill country down here outside of Austin. Um, Is that where you are born? You guys were born like... I was born in Houston, but all my brothers were born here in Austin, yeah. How many you got? Two. Okay, so... Uh, I've got Ross, who you know, who is... Uh, he's at Jacobs now, and he's the youngest. And then we have a middle brother who's a chiropractor up in West Fort Worth. No kidding. Yeah, he's he's in between us. So I'm three years older than Jeffrey and five years older than Ross. Okay, Jeffrey uh, didn't have any appetite to be in this. Which one of you, you or Ross, which one of you guys got in this industry first? Ross did. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to get to all that. So, But you were you were born in Houston and you were raised yeah, here? Yeah, here. I was raised. We came over here when I was six weeks old. So Okay, so this is home. Yeah, we had a lake house down at, in Spicewood, so not very far from where JT's at. Gotcha. You know, it's funny because I uh, met your brother once at Rosie's, yeah. like on 71. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, I've been coming here since I was a kid. My mom went into labor with him at Rosie's. Small. No kidding. Yep. And wouldn't leave because she said, they're not going to feed me for two days. I'm going to sit here and finish my enchilada plate. Get out. <laughs> oh, yeah. your mom sounds like a nut, huh? Yeah, yeah. So. Sounds funny. So, uh, okay, so you're, where'd you go to high school at? Cleburne, Texas. Yeah, so about... Uh, three hours north here, two and a half hours north, about an hour south of Fort Worth. Um, my mom met a guy, and they ended up getting married, so we moved up there. And uh, I guess when I was in fifth grade, we moved there. Um, moved around a little bit before then, but ended up there when I was in fifth grade and then ended up graduating from Cleburne and then left from there and went to the Navy because I figured it was either I was going to go to jail or die if I didn't go do something else. So Sounds interesting. About most of my best friends all talk like that. Yeah. So what did you do? I mean, were you an athlete in high school? No, not really. I was team roper. You know, I was no more kidding. of a cowboy, yeah. I built saddles. Um, the whole time I was in high school, I worked at a custom saddle shop and then um, team roped and just no kidding. Built hay and hauled hay and did all the country. Is stuff. that what you kind of you lived out in the country? Mm hmm. Yeah. How big was that school? <sighs> How big was that school? I think I graduated with 120 people. It's kind of big for those small I mean, towns. It was a 5A. Yeah, it was a 5A. Oh, so that's not that 4A, small. 4A, 5A back then, yeah. I was like, uh, that's a lot of people. For yeah, I think we had maybe 1,500 kids, something like that, 1,200 right. kids. So it's a big school. Yeah, it's the only high school. So it's funny because, you know, I didn't really, I didn't know anything different. And then when I got married and moved to Indiana for a few years, there's like seven or eight, nine high schools in that little bitty town that we lived in in Indiana. In the little town that I lived in, we had one high school. Yeah. And so it was really weird for me that you had a choice of high schools that you could go to. And, you know, where I went to school, there was one. And it was for the entire county, pretty much. So did, so did you, like, have to, like, your rival schools were 30, 40 minutes away type of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we played Crowley and we played, uh, you know, we played South Dallas and some of those big schools. Um, sure. But, yeah, they were usually a long ways away because we played bigger schools. So it was usually city schools. So when you graduated high school, did you go right into the Navy? Yeah, I left 30 days after I graduated. So what was, uh, like, how did you know that you wanted to go in the military, and then how did you know you wanted to go in the Navy? Um, I went to, uh, when I was 17, um, I went, and I'd always wanted to go in the service. Like, I'd kind of been my thing since as long as I can remember. Do you have any of that in your family lineage? I mean, My grandfather was in the Army, um, and then uh, I guess both my grandfathers my true grandfather and then my step-grandfather were both in the Army. And then um, on my dad's side, his father or his stepfather was a master sergeant in the Air Force. And so, you know, it had all, they didn't really talk about it, though, much. Like, you know, it wasn't yeah. ever talked to sure. to me. Um, but it was – I just always thought that it was, you know, a cool thing to do, a way to go give back. And, you know, I always thought that it would set you up on the right path, you know. And I, 
I'm not a school guy. I wasn't a college guy. Just it wasn't in my DNA. Um, matter of fact, I didn't even go to high school my senior year. I, I got expelled. Long story, but ended up going to uh, college instead. Um, and went to college for two semesters while I was waiting to graduate, and sure. then ended up leaving for the Navy right after I got out. So, so, uh, so you weren't joking. You're like, I had to go, or I was going to get arrested. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't. I didn't get in trouble. It was more of a um, issue that we had with the uh, school, the uh, school uh, leadership, if you will. Between sure. they didn't like my mom. It was a lot of it. They didn't like her because she was a successful woman who was single, raising three boys, and in that small town. You're supposed to have a band to help you out. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. What did your? Uh, I know that your mom. Uh, you've you've talked about her before. Yeah, she's a big influence. It sounds like, and she was uh, self-made. Yeah, businesswoman. It sounds like did really well for herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's done great. You know, she came up through a man's world, and um, you know, kind of figured her way through it, and uh, it's it's been cool to watch for the last thirty years or so. so. You guys pretty close. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I talked to her. I talked to her last night. I mean, nice. we talk all the time. Yeah, we're actually planning our big family vacation for next year. We got to plan these things a year out because there's 27 of us that travel. So, so is it like you guys going out of the country or staying in the no, states? No, we're going to stay in the country just because we have a bunch of little kids. So I think we're going to uh, Hilton Head. Or, uh, uh, Hilton Head's nice. No, it's it's it's. We're flying into Wilmington, North Carolina, it's Telephone Island or something like that. Oh, it's, I don't know. I don't, know, where I don't know. I've never been. So how'd you find it? I don't know. So. uh What'd your mom think when you were going to join the Navy? She was pissed. Why? She was pissed because, you know, she's she didn't want it to happen. And, um, you know, I was 17, and I'd gone and taken the ASVAB, and I'd gone through everything as far as everything you could do before signing a contract, and I had to have her sign for me. So we had to have a conversation around it, and, you know, I had a good job. I'd picked electronics tech, which is what I wanted to do. You were an ET? Uh-huh. All right. Yeah, so was I, I got to go to BWE school and all that stuff. So Where was that at? In Great Lakes. So you graduated from basic in Great Lakes, and then you had to stay there for your A school? For a year, yeah. Oh, what's that months. like? It was horrible. That sounds horrible. It was horrible. I, like, left, like, three days after no, I graduated. I left there. Not one day after I graduated. Once I left there, though, I was there for... It wasn't horrible, though. I dated a couple of Harley models out of Milwaukee. We partied a lot. Like oh, it yeah. was. It was fun. Like, it was well, you a know what, really party. good time in my life. It Mi- was fun. Because you're, you're only, like, 45 minutes from Milwaukee, right? Yeah, I lived in Milwaukee. I li- I do like Milwaukee. Yeah, I mean, I would. They, you didn't. You only had to be at the base when you were on duty. I mean, it was a little looser back then than it is today. You, uh, they didn't make you live in barracks or something. Yeah, like that? you had like a. Yeah, you lived with two other guys, but it was like a hotel room. It wasn't. Yeah, but were you? Your 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 housing was in Milwaukee, basically. I live. I mean, I had a girlfriend there, so oh, I would okay. just go stay with her when I could. Sure, that's how. It, that's how it normally worked. I had yeah. a roommate that did that, and it was awesome for me because one. He was never there, so I basically had a place to myself. Mm-hmm. It was it was pretty nice actually. Yeah. So, uh, but we were deployed all the time. What did you do? So you went to school there for how long was that school? <sighs> how long was that school? I don't know, eight months, seven months, eight months. And then you, do you have C schools after that, or yeah? You... Then I left and went to San Diego. I was in San Diego for almost five months. So you spend uh, a good more than a year oh, yeah. before you even see the fleet. Yeah. Well, then I left San Diego and went to another school in Virginia. What what was that school? Uh, I went to HF school in San Diego, and then what's I went that? To, uh, high frequency. Okay. And then I went to UHF school and SATCOM in Virginia. That's kind of cool. So now you're a year and a half in. You mm-hmm. still haven't seen the fleet? I'm E3. Uh, was it E3? Fixing to make E4 by the time I got to my ship. I made E4 as soon as I checked into my ship. So what, what did you serve on? The USS Detroit is an AOE. is a fast combat supply support ship. So carried was- about 185,000 tons of bombs, 10 million gallons of fuel. 
a bunch of frozen goods and ammunition for the fleet. So we kept, we were kind of like the fleet's grocery store, but we were self-sufficient. So we nobody ever cruised with us. We'd have a sub with us occasionally. I was like, you didn't have any defenses? We defended ourselves. So we had Sea Sparrow. We had Sea Whiz. We had oh, okay. 50 cows. I mean, we had, we had air defense and uh, water defense as well. Where so, were you stationed? New Jersey. Whole New Jersey. So... I know that's what I did when I got the orders. I was like, I was pissed. I was well, so mad <laughs> when I got the orders. I was so mad, and because uh, I was number one in my class uh, at ET school, so I was supposed to get to pick of orders. Yeah, and uh, I ended up getting called out of class for something, mm. and they picked orders they while skipped I was you. gone, oh. and I got whatever was left. Your instructor did not I like was you. So pissed. No, they did not like me. But I was smarter than they were, so that's probably why they didn't like me. But. Um, so anyway, I got the orders in New Jersey. I landed in New Jersey at midnight. What when, part of New Jersey is it again? Central Jersey, right okay. by Sandy Hook, right? Okay. So across from New York City, um, it's snowing the night I landed. It's like, mm. snow's like 12, 15 inches. And we're cruising to the base, and this big old 14-point buck walks out in front of the car that I'm in. And I was like, okay, this is going to be pretty cool. And it actually was just beautiful. I mean, yeah. we, we had a really good time in New Jersey. You're on the Jersey Shore. All the people watch everything about MTV and, and all the stuff with uh, Sookie and all those people, but it was cool. I mean, it was it was like that. I mean, it was you partied every weekend and you had the Jersey Shore in the summertime. Now the winter sucked. It was a little cold, but Ugh. you just go to the city. I mean, we were in New York City. We'd go to New York. We'd get up at you know we'd get off work at three thirty four o'clock, go home and take a nap. We'd be in the city by ten p.m. We'd party till six thirty, haul ass back to the ship, work quarters, all day long, make mustard, yeah, make mustard, work all day long, go back home, take a nap, go back to the city, party, and we do three or four days in a row just I gotta partying tell, in New York. I um, I, it's an interesting fraternity, you know, yeah. living through all that stuff because I, I think about all the stupid things, and you're a sailor too, so I imagine some of the things you did, and then I have a kid that just graduated high school, and I'm like, I. Uh, I don't know if I want him to go make the same stupid decisions that I've made, I guess. But, uh, I mean, I guess it's inevitable. He's going to go do his stupid things like well, we I have did. a 20-year-old in the Navy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So What's his rate? He's uh, AT. So he'll okay. be an aviation electric, electronics tech. We'll hire him when so he comes he'll out. he'll be AET. Um, and if, talking about stupid decisions, he's in uh, Pensacola, right? Hanging out on the beach every weekend. Rough life. Um, I think the first weekend he was there, he met a gypsy. Nice. Second, the second time he, the second weekend they went out to the beach, uh, he met a thirty-three-year-old chick who's hitting on him, and then last weekend he met two thirty-two-year-old Brazilian chicks. So he's living his best life. You <laughs> how, know? how long has he been in? Uh, he's been in. Oh, it'll be a year in July. No kidding. Yeah. So was he probably E four now? I'm guessing he's fixing to make E four. So yeah. I think he's got to finish this school and he'll make E four. Yeah. I got you. So going back to you, so you were seventeen, eighteen. Get your. You mm -hmm. went to school, so you're eighteen by the time you hit the the fleet. You I was OG. nineteen. It's going to be 20 when I hit the fleet. It makes sense. And then uh, what years are these, by the way? 96. So, so how old are you? 44. I just turned 44. So I'm two years older than you, but we were on the pond at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you were in in 96. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, by then, I was I was in New London, Connecticut. Okay. I was stationed there. So, But I would, I did the opposite as you. Like, we would just take the train from New London. I mean, we'd basically flip a coin and be like, okay, you want to go to Boston or you want to go to New York? Right. You know, north or south, let's do it. And... You got to remember those are the days before there were cell phones and yeah. like you kind of had to coordinate some things, mm -hmm. you know, or you relied a lot on those taxi drivers to tell you what's what, right? So uh, the good old days. So how long were you in for? Six. Okay. So were you stationed there the whole time? Yeah. So they wanted me to transfer and I talked I talked to them and just let me stay because I didn't want to go to another duty station and have to start over because I was the LPO 
sure where i was and i didn't have a chief so it was actually me to the devo and so it was uh it was a good gig i mean i i got away with murder pretty much i mean i could pretty much do whatever i wanted how uh how often did you guys go to sea oh we were i got paid arduous sea duty we were at sea 270 days a year so i had an average higher yeah i had like 288 days a year on average and it was cool we got because i had a brother yeah well i had a brother that had graduated west point and was in flight school is uh you know first or second lieutenant whatever that is and and I think I was making more than him at the time. It was an E four at sea, yeah. the sea pay, sub pay, and all the premiums you get on top of that. I was like, this ain't so bad. Well, the great thing was, you know, you could go party crazy, and then you'd go to sea for a month or two, and then you'd come Restack back. And your, the bank bank account, account. your bank account, your bank account, is a savings plan. You know, your bank account's filled back up. And fuck it, let's go party some more. I know, dude. I was telling one of my kids, uh, one of my sons had a wrestling tournament in Kansas this weekend, so we were coming back, and uh, somehow it came up, and we were talking. He was talking about savings, right? Yeah. And, you know, my dad, you know, got them a book, same book he got me when I was in high school. It's, uh, you know, Richest Man in Babylon or whatever. Yeah. But it's the principle of saving 10%. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I just had an allotment set up to where I had so much sent off into a savings account that someone could go invest that money for me. So the money that did hit my bank account, I could piss it all away and never worry because I was right. saving so much already. And because I was at sea all the time, I was actually doing pretty good because... You can't spend money when you're at sea, you know. So I'm like, it Just worked out. It worked vices, out. yeah. <laughs> you can't, you know, you can't. Have, you don't have a lot of that stuff on the ship, uh-uh. or at least on the boat when I was on. So you were. Uh, you're on a sub, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so I never, I never saw those. Like, I don't know where you guys operated. You guys ever go into the Mad? You guys go all the way across? The- yeah. So we we used to do, but I mean, we had subs with us all the time. Um, I mean, hell, we unwrapped a sub out in the middle of the Mediterranean one time. Um, really? That was pretty wild. Yeah, we did it with uh, with uh, rib boats. It was wild. I was wondering how you do that. Yeah, and then y'all set up a conga line and no kidding. Yeah, it was wild because it was at right. It was right after nine eleven, right? So yeah, nobody could pull in anywhere. We hadn't pulled in anywhere. We didn't pull in anywhere for one hundred sixty seven days. So hold on, you were at sea during September eleventh? No, no, no. I was at the trade center for September eleventh. I was okay. in the lobby. Um, okay, but we left ten days later and went across. Hold on. So we're gonna have to scratch the paint on that. So you were in the trade center I when was, the planes yeah, hit. Yeah. Me and my mom. Well, why were you there? I was. I'd been home on leave because I was getting ready to go to the med. And she came to visit you. And I, she said, "Hey, I've got a meeting in New York. Let's just go up a couple of days early. We'll hang out. We'll stay at the Marriott. We'll get a suite, and we'll hang out in New York for a couple of days. And then you know, you can just yeah. catch a ferry and go to the ship." And I was like, "All right, cool, yeah." And so we just had breakfast on the twenty eighth floor that morning. Yeah. And then how f- how like when you left? How far after? I don't have the timing. I mean, I do have. So the I was leaving at. I was using the ATM at eight eleven when it hit. Um, and I walked outside and I called my mom and I was like, Hey, don't get in the elevator. Some idiot just flew a little bitty plane into this building. How you can hit that building. I don't know, but wow. I'm sure they're going to evacuate the building. So don't get in the elevator. She, Cause she was heading to the 104th floor and, uh, she's like, okay. And I could, you know, there's, so paper. she came down, she listened to you. Yeah. And so, but she went out the opposite door. So I'm on this side of the building and she went out the opposite side, which is two blocks away. Right. And, yeah. um, and then we lost each other and. Uh, I went a couple of blocks away and couldn't get a hold of her. Obviously, cell phones weren't working. I went down to the Chase Bank building. Where I'm standing out there talking to a bunch of people, and we're watching. Um, and so I go into the building to use their phone to see if I can get their phone to work. No doesn't phones. work, doesn't work. First building comes down. We all take off running, get down. I'm like, she would know where I'm going. She knew I was going to the ferry terminal. I'm just going to go to the ferry terminal. So I go to the ferry terminal, sit there and wait for her. Can't. You know, and I'm sitting there and the second building comes down. I'm like, um, I'm going to get out of here. This is crazy. I got to get out of here. And I'd heard that the Pentagon got 
attack too. And so I'm like, I got to get back to my ship. Like we're yeah. going to have to get underway. And uh, so I jumped on the ferry. My phone rings when I get on the ferry and it's my mom's CEO. And he's like, hey, I just talked to your mom. She's alive. She's good. And about that time, the ferry's backing away and I see her walking in front of the pier and dude, I lost it. Like, yeah, because you knew crazy. she was Yeah, it was bad. So That's horrible. We got over to, uh, I don't even remember where we pulled in, where the ferry pulled in. But anyway, I'm sitting, um, I just walked into a bar and I'm watching TV and I just needed a drink. So um, Now you're in civilian attire, you're not in your uniform. No, I'm in civilian attire, yeah. And I've got, I, I had a backpack with me. I didn't have a backpack with me anymore. I'd given all the clothes away out of it so people could breathe. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm, the girl I was with at the time was pregnant with my son. Well, she knew I was in New York, but she hadn't talked to me. So sure. she didn't know if I'm alive or dead. So she's, I'm sitting at the bar for a couple hours and I see her drive by through the window and I run out and get her and she gets out and starts punching me because she thought I was dead. And, sure. um, we finally found my mom three days later, four days later, she ended up cause she didn't know I, where I was. She never saw me on the ferry cause she couldn't see through. Um, she ended up at a nurse's house on Fifth Avenue. Just a stranger. And, and they put her up for three or four days and uh, finally got a hold of her once the phones kind of started working again a few days later. She came over and stayed with me for a few days. The captain called me. She's like, we're not pulling out until the 21st now, so you need to be on board the night of the 20th so we can pull out. We're leaving at 5 a.m. And uh, So you like, had a few days to rendezvous back Yeah, yeah. There. she's like, do what you – she said, I heard that you were over there. You, you got some time. Do what you need to do. And I was like, okay. So we got my mom over to my place, got her put up, and then um, the CEO from Belfort, who she worked for, they sent a plane for her because she wouldn't get on a commercial flight. So they oh, sent yeah. a jet for her and got her back to Texas, and she didn't get on a plane for a long time, and it was wow. It's still she's still scarred from it. It's still uh, it's pretty intense. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, that's a crazy story. Have you shared that story with other people in the space? Not many. No, I don't talk about it a lot. It's uh, and that's a super yeah, fast version. Yeah, that's a super fast how version because it's. Uh, you know, you put that in a box and put it away. It was, it was horrible for a lot of people, and luckily we might we made it out alive, and we made it. We were good. So uh, I wasn't. So I wasn't active duty. I did get recalled for like four months after it happened. Really? I'll tell you the stupidest thing is, uh, you know, when you're on a sub that's deployed a lot, um, you know how the military works. Like they don't give you raises and bonuses, sort of speak, right? But the only thing that they could do to reward you is to try to find a way to benefit your quality of life. So for me, there was some stupid like 30 day sea trial that, that the ship had to do to get certified for, you know, the next deployment. And uh, um, one of my chiefs was like, hey, let's let's go find you a 30 day school where you can stay on port because we, we could function without you. And that was like my reward, you know. Yeah. yeah. Those schools, you know, yeah. those one month schools in the military are really designed for um, to take a break almost. Yeah. You know, I felt like. You show up, you know, at eight o'clock, you were done at two, two to one. Yeah. yeah. At the latest, you too, you yeah. know. So, uh, and it was the Anwar and Six Victor, which was like basically yeah. a, a platform that we didn't even, I don't even know if we had it on the submarine at the time. But um, if we did, we probably weren't using it all that much. And, um, but it was just something that was random that would arbitrarily let me be around. Well, I didn't realize that that platform was really more for surface ships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had them. Yep. And, um, and Assault Craft Unit 5 is in Camp Pendleton, and those are the uh, the hovercrafts, the yeah. LCACs, mm -hmm. Landing Craft Air Cushions, yep. and uh, they have them. Those so, things are fast. Holy cow, they're fast. They're awesome. Like, I got to tell you, I was in the submarine base, so I went to, like, my, I'll, let me tell you my story. 
Like, yeah. I wasn't like you. Like, how long did you know that you wanted it? Like, your junior year, like, hey, when I graduate, I'm going to the Navy? Or was it halfway through your senior year? Or, like, at what point? No, were like, I knew. Probably when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I was going to service. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I knew I was going to the military, too, but I didn't know what branch, and I didn't know what. So the reason I went to the Navy, I, I, was, I thought about the Air Force, and um, but I wasn't big on the Air Force. I always wanted to fly, right? I mean, and I'm a pilot now. And I didn't Are get you to, really? I, yeah, I didn't get to do that until I got out of the service. I had to do it privately. But I always wanted to fly, but my eyes weren't good enough. And um, so I went to go talk to the Air Force just to kind of learn some more about it, and they were closed. And um, <laughs> the Navy was open. And of course. I'm sitting there looking, and I got Army, Marines, Air Force is closed. I got the Navy and the Air Force thinking, only works every other day. Well, so. I'm thinking I'm not sleeping in a ditch and eating MREs, oh, and I don't nice. want to get shot at all the damn time. The Navy, I get three meals a day, air conditioning, and a bunk. I'm going there. Yeah, and they are pretty technical, you know. I mean, so sure. uh, and so I went and took the ASVAB, and you know, I was a pretty smart guy, so I did all right on it. And they were like, "You want to be a nuke or an ET?" And I was like, "ET." Nicely done. I didn't want to be on a sub. Thank you for your service, but I didn't want to be there. <laughs> yeah, it was a great place to. It was the right thing for me, oh, but 100%. I could I could see that. Yeah, and so that was kind of how I went to the Navy versus any of the other branches was just just basic. But you had the mind self preservation. But you were smart enough to ask the right questions to kind of know yeah. like what's my quality of life going to be because that's what it comes down to. Yeah, right? absolutely. I don't know. Uh, I'm really happy. Like the the sub community has been great for me. It was a hard place to be, obviously, when you first hit the fleet because I was joke. I'm like I can only compare it to like prison, you know, where like. You are nothing. You mm -hmm. are, I mean, your name is Nub, non-useful body. Hey, Nub. Because all you do is, you know, breathe their air and fill their shit tanks and eat their food. You take up bunk space. You're waste. You're not a qualified watch standard. It takes a year to earn your fish or your right. welfare pen. You're nothing. You're a Nub, non-useful right. body. So uh, I don't know if I would have probably joined it had I known about that, but I'm glad I did because that pressure test certainly helps you deal with you know, trials and tribulations a little bit better. But, I mean, it sounds like you got that, too, with what you were doing on the surface. Oh, yeah. I mean, I went two cruises, right? I said I went to the Persian Gulf twice. So I was over there during Desert Fox and Kosovo and that whole genocide sure. thing. Yep. We ended up going to General Quarters at 1030 on Christmas Eve in 1998. No kidding. That was pretty wild. Uh, a gunship and an oiler tanker tried to sink us. So Shut up. Yeah, come through the Straits of Hormuz. Yeah, so, you know, you got, you got to deal with the stressful situations. And I think you got to learn... I think what it taught me was leadership more than anything, right? So, I mean, I've always been a type A personality, but it wasn't always the right type A, where now I think that I learned to listen more. I learned to take other people's opinions. Just because they're junior to me doesn't mean that they don't know what they're doing. They all went to school just like I did to learn sure. their, their place. So, um, you know, and, and then having to deal with the higher-ups, having to deal with the captain. I mean, I sat in the captain's court office a lot um in yeah. different meetings and, and you know because i'm running all their communications and so she wanted me in the meetings a lot or he wanted me in the meetings a lot um i think i went through four captains while i was there so wow how long were you on that ship uh four years four and a half years right? so uh what's it like on the surface do they make you get your warfare pen is it oh, required yeah. it's mandatory no it's not mandatory but i ran i was one of the uh my chief and myself were one of the ones who they didn't have a warfare program on our ship when i got there and no um, qual card for you to just plug into what's that they didn't have like a ship's qual card and be like get after it nope so we built the syllabus for our ship and me and him kind of got people from the other all the other departments to put Contribute. a warfare program together and i think our last year and a half or two years i was there i think i qualified 250 or 300 people no kidding so mm -hmm. you probably sat on those boards what were you by the then i sat you? on the boards as an e5 okay 
All right. Everybody else is an E6 or chief, and I sit on the board as an E5 because I was the subject matter expert. I mean, I didn't. Sure. They didn't have a choice. Now, uh, did they make you qualify certain watch stations as collateral duty? Like, obviously, you're a helmsman or something. I don't know. No, they... you had to be qualified as officer of the deck, right? For when you did. Port, yeah. So anything E5 and above could stand officer of the deck. Um, and so I got officer of the deck called as soon as I made E5. And then after that, then I was working towards my East Wasp pin. Uh, another stupid random question. When you get to the fleet, do you have to crank? Like when you get to the ship, if you're e if you're below e four, so I got to the ship and I was an e four, so I didn't have to. So got to the ship as I got the sub as an e four, but they, yeah. um, I mean everybody is basically by the time right. you get to the fleet, right? And uh, and you have to crank for ninety days. Yeah, that's tough duty. So I cranked for four <laughs> because I'm not I'm not that stupid. I'm not saying I'm not stupid, but um. There was a, I, f I forget where the watch station was, but it was like Helms and Plainsman or something simple. But I was like, I don't give a shit if I have to stay up the entire next four days. I'd rather do that than, than have to crank, mm -hmm. right? So I, I got qualified a watch station as fast as I could. And then I eventually got qualified chief of the watch on a submarine. And I think I did that still as an E4. So y'all are a lot different than, than surface, right? So... On the surface, you've got um, you know you've got the bridge crew and you've got the CIC right, the command and control, and you know CIC is right next to the bridge and CIC is the dark room where all the OSs and the EWs and everybody sit. So as an ET, we had to stand watch, but we stood watching our own space at the back of the ship, and then we were in charge of site TV as well. So we were in charge of making sure everybody had entertainment, as well as that made you popular probably. hundred percent. You get those movies watching. Mm -hmm. You get those movies watching. Yeah, we had. And so when I got there, we only had one channel. And then we ended up wiring up, so we ended up having four channels. So we had four different movies going hero. all the time. Ah, man, we we did. It was actually a lot of fun. Just all the stuff that I learned. Um, you know, we didn't have telephones, like you said. We didn't have cell phones yeah. or satcom. You didn't have satellite phones and all that stuff. Did we back didn't even then. have email. No, there was no email then. I and mean, so, I, you're not getting email. And to so the ship. I found an old twenty watt ham radio, and put in a request to the captain. Ended up wiring that thing up. And we would be four or five, six hundred miles off the Atlantic coast and people would stand at line and I had it set up in a little office and they'd stand in line and you could call on the shore and there were people on shore Shoot listening shore, to ham yeah. radio and they would call your parents for you so that you could talk to your parents over a CB radio. Get out. Yeah, yeah. So we set Nothing that up. Like that. Yeah, we set that up. That was super cool. Um, and then they ended up sending us to, land, uh, to fiber school. So oh. that, and we ended up, me and three of my guys ended up running all of the fiber network for the entire ship for Cipernet and Nippernet. So no that kidding. was pretty cool to do it on a ship built in the 1949. We had a fiber network. That is cool. How big was that boat? It's, uh, or ship, sorry. 890 feet long, 240 feet wide. Damn, it's almost like three times the length of it's a big. We had a 42 foot draft. How many people, oh wow, how many people were on that? 600, 630. It's a big crew, actually. Yeah. I didn't even realize how big that was. Yeah. So, look, 140, 150 of them are women. No kidding. Yeah, that was wild. I think the submarine community is probably benefiting a lot from having women yeah. in it. And I say that because when you're stationed in Lonely, Connecticut, it's the submarine capital of the world, right? It's mm -hmm. nothing but subs. And back then, it was nothing but guys. And the only women I ever saw in the military were like, if I had to go to the corpsman or if I had to go to the dentist. But those are the only times I ever ran into. Um, the opposite gender when I was, you know, in the military, which probably didn't give me any advantages, but it, I mean, if you think about the industry we're in right now, oh yeah, it's not, it's pretty dense in dudes, right? So 
it wasn't a hard transition for me, you know, to come in and be like, all right, well, I'm just surrounded by, and it's not, I mean, I just don't know if there was a lot of people that wanted to be on submarines, guys or girls, right? And same with uh, this industry, right? I love this industry. This industry is awesome. Some people, uh, it's just not a homogenous, it's, it's emerging and evolving so quickly that people don't know how to explain what it really is yet, you know, yeah. because it evolves and reinvents itself so often. So, um, I think it's hard for some people and some people are like, look, I know what the finance industry is. I know what the automotive industry is or, you know, something that's a little bit more established manufacturing, retail, whatever, trying to get into this space sometimes is it's too big of a reach to understand what that space is. I have know? a hard time telling people what I do for a living. I mean, I can tell you, I do, you're the rental business, but and that's not, I mean, the rental business is a big, nasty animal. And, you know, when you tell them I, I focus on mission critical, well, what is mission critical? Man? Exactly. I make sure your phones keep working. You know, I mean, really, that's at the end of the day, that's what we do is make sure all your apps work and you don't get the little spinny thing when you're trying to stream your Netflix, you know? So it's funny because all that is true, but that's really not exactly mm -hmm. everything that you do, mm -hmm. right? So that's why it's really hard. I had like Peter Gross on here once and he may have the biggest brain I've ever met, right? Right. And, it's like, Peter, what do you tell people you do? And he's like, I just tell people I'm an engineer. And I'm like, that's no fair because he's a PE and you can do that. And people are like, oh, that makes sense. I'm like, but this industry, like, how do you codify it? How do you explain it to people? And it's one of the most challenging things, I think, for most people, right? So what about, um, so what year did you get out? 02, June of 02. Okay, so was that, uh, did you always know you were going to get out or did you ever think that you were going to reenlist and stay in? So... I was going to, I actually had orders for my next duty station. I was going to short duty probably, right? Yeah, it was. I was going to go work for uh, chief of staff. I was going to go work for an admiral. Um, for the, Where at? Uh, out of Washington, D.C. I was going to be in charge of their communications for when he travels around the world speaking. That would have been kind of cool, actually. It would have been awesome, right? But I'd have been well, gone. I'd have been gone on a private jet all the time, traveling all over, setting up comms. And uh, I had a son, right? Okay. I had a son three days before I pulled back in from Afghanistan. So No kidding. Um, yeah, and so I had to, you know, I knew he was coming, obviously, and um, I just decided that, you know, they were going to pay me sixty grand, sixty five grand to re up, and yeah. plus I got, you know, I had some pretty badass orders, and um, I decided I didn't probably wasn't the best thing to be a dad and, and be gone for, you know, the next four years of my life. And this is the son that's in the Navy now. It is, yeah. So did you have any input or influence over him at all in terms of what he did for this rate? I mean, you were like, hey, son. Oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So he tried to go SWIC, right? So yeah, he trained awesome. for a year, year and a half to go SWIC, and he was working out with all the That'd special, be awesome. With the Special Forces guys in San yeah. Antonio. And um, the ocean's cold in San Diego in the winter, he found out. Oh, yeah. yeah. I heard. And uh, so he got to Hell Week and uh, ended up dropping out in Hell Week. So. How, how long is SWIC? I, it's Special Warfare Combat Crewman? Yeah, eight weeks. So eight weeks. Yeah. And he made it to week four. Is it is it at the same place where, mm -hmm. like... Okay. Yeah. So it's in North. Uh, They're right next Silver to Strand Beach. It's yeah. in yeah Coronado, North yeah. Beach. Yeah. So that's, I did the. Uh, I've gone down there and do the Super Seal a few times. Yeah. And they do it in. I want to say it was maybe March, and uh, that's a super cold time. So imagine, you're you know we would, we would drink until two in the morning in the gas lamp district, and then stumble across the streets of Hard Rock and stay the night, wake up to be in the water for a triathlon at 6.30 in the morning. Yeah. And um, the water temperature is like in the upper... 50s? Yeah. Or... 55, 54. I'd say maybe mid-60s. Yeah. Yeah. It was cold. It's cold. But you're standing there in, the, in your wetsuit and you're on the sand and it's, you know, 
it's 10 degrees warmer than the, than the water was. Or no, maybe it was colder. It was colder there. I remember thinking, I'm like, wow, the water's cold, but it's warmer than where I'm at right now. So they had a really messed up thing they would do to him, and they'd go, they'd take him out to the pool. The pool was heated to 85. So they'd make him get in the pool, and it's 30. It was 35 to 45 outside, usually, uh, when he was there. So they'd make him go jump in the pool at 85, get out soaking oh, wet, and stay even in bigger. for two hours. Oof. And then when they start drying off, they had a, a decon station, what they called it, and it was all these rubber things that squirt out high-pressure water, and they'd make him go run through that, and it's cold water, and then make him go jump back in the pool and stand back at attention for another two hours, like just to keep him wet and cold for hours and hours and hours on end. Uh, well, so listen, so that changes your contract, I guess. So he was going to swick, and that's the next amount so of time. So that was six out. That was six years, and now he's he's been in almost a year. So he just signed new orders, I guess, what March or April, and he did five years. So he'll, okay, so he'll, he'll get still out in get twenty eight, his... twenty seven, twenty eight. He'll get out. Owen oh, does. You give him, you send him our way. We're always yeah, trying yeah. to hire, especially. ATs. I'm hoping he re ups, man. I think, I think that uh, he does really good with structure. And so I think make a career out of it. I think that he would do really well there if he made a career out of it. Good for him. I mean, he'll be done at thirty-eight. Then you can still come do something in the sure. in the data center space. And now you just have that much more leadership and that much more knowledge that you could you know kind of bring back to the civilian world. So, well, speaking of that, let's dovetail back into that. So in two thousand two, you got out. I did. Yeah. And then what did you do? Mm. I didn't know what I was going to do for a couple months, and then uh, I went and interviewed at a little construction company. Hold on. So when you got out, you were you got I, Uncle Sam I moved back to Texas. Yeah. Okay. So Uncle I moved Sam. in with my mom again. She had a, you know, she was home alone. So she was had, it still up in? She's in Fort Worth. Okay. And so I went to I went to and interviewed with a company that they had just bought over in Dallas. Her company had just bought it, but they hadn't really integrated them yet. And so I took a warehouse job, making twelve bucks an hour. Sure. Yeah. And uh, just to tell her, like, figure just, out what just you trying to do. figure out what I want to do, but I needed to have something to do. Get up, go work in the morning. Now, were you married, divorced? Mm -hmm. no, okay, you had one son. I had a son. I didn't have custody of him yet. He was living in Italy at the time. Oh, was your? Uh, she got transferred to Italy. She so was in the she navy. Was, she yeah. was active duty. What was, what was her rate? Just curious. Et. Okay. <laughs> it gotcha. Was, it was a little. It was a bad thing. Gotcha. Uh, you're not supposed to do that service, you know. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, moved back here. Took that little job. Um, wanted to get into sales. Went and talked to the manager. He told me he didn't need sales guys, and I said, we were doing fire restoration at the time. And uh, so I said, well, what if, I said, there's a pager that you can get, and, and there's people that listen to the scanner. I said, it's 15 bucks a month. I said, if you pay for the pager, I'll chase on my off time. And if, you know, give me six months, let's see how I do, and, you know, we'll go from there. He's like, okay, we'll do that. So I did it for six months, sold $600,000. His number one salesman in the entire office did $1.5 I so did 600 grand on my off time. So needless to say, I got a sales job. So uh, now, well, your mom worked there, right? She was, yeah, she, but she was an executive. Okay. She, wow. And uh, how did you know that you want to get into sales? Just because I, it was, when I was out, you know, I would go out on jobs as crews and stuff. And it just, it was always fun to talk to the people sure. and talk to the customers and kind of have that interaction. And I could always upsell stuff when we were out there. And I just thought it'd be fun. What were you selling? Fire restoration. So, you know, your house would catch on fire, and I would walk in with the firemen as they were putting the fire out and and convince you that you needed to hire us to pack your house out and do the restoration on your house so that you could get back in as quick as possible. No kidding. That and was the I business. Would, and I would negotiate with the insurance company on your behalf. Damn, how'd you learn all that? Mm, I don't know. Okay, so... I mean, I was in the restoration business a little bit growing up, right? Because my mom's always been in that industry, so um, I've always kind of been around that industry a lot. Um 
So, I mean, it was... So you knew the dialect. I knew that, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So you, you kind of understood it. So, and then how long did you do that? So you shifted after six months into full-time sales? I did that until I got married. So I got married in 2008. Um, so from 02 to 08. I got married in uh, July of 08. Were you and, up in Fort Worth still? Mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, she was going to move here to Texas, and we were, I bought a piece of property out by Lake Worth, and we were going to build a house. And about... Sixty or ninety days before we were supposed to get married, she lost uh, a court case that was so she could move to Texas with her daughter. And uh, she called me and told me that she couldn't move, and I had to move to Indiana. Or we is that why you were in Indiana? Or we could call the wedding off. Yeah. Which so, part of Indiana were you in? Southern Indiana, Evansville. How'd you like it? Didn't. Okay. What? what it's like prison, kind of. <laughs> oh, I got gotcha. you. It's one of those. It's things. real flat. You know, it's just uh, the people are just different. You know, I like Texans. I really do. I love Texas, and so you're yeah. very Texan. That's yeah. why. Southern Indiana is just. They're Yankees. I mean, they're across the Mason-Dixon. You know what I mean? They're just a little different. So, um, it was. It was. I mean, it was okay. It's twelve years. You know, it's long twelve years. But you lived there for twelve mm -hmm. years, and then once I guess her daughter was old enough. As soon as they graduated, they graduated, and we left. They graduated in the end of May, first of June, and we left in first uh, of August. Whole, so how? So when did you move back to Texas? August sixth of twenty twenty. No kidding. All right, so listen, let's back up, though, because when you were, were you, when you moved to Indiana, were you still working for your mom? No, uh, no, they didn't have an office there, so uh, it was 08, 09, right? Economy crashed, um, literally right after I moved, I, you know, resigned, and um, Belfort was great, though. They paid me for six months after I left, just because they knew I was transitioning, and they knew the reasons, and um, so, you know, they kept me on the payroll for a little while while we were trying to figure it out, and... I couldn't find a sales job. Everybody wanted you to have a master's degree, and I didn't go to college. So, um, you know, it was hard to find a sales job doing what I wanted to do. So I started a little credit card company and started hustling credit cards and um, doing the processing for small businesses. And I signed a couple of hundred accounts in about six months, and we were making good money. I was doing You were just making an overlay off every transaction? Yeah. Still do it today. I mean, we still do that now. No kidding. Yeah, it's great. So um, we did that, and... Uh, a guy at Belfort, actually, Agreco was a, a company, right? there in the industry a little bit. Um, had approached Belfort asking him if he knew anybody in southern Indiana, western Kentucky. They needed a sales guy. And he's like, man, I know a guy, but I don't, I don't know if he's looking. And so the guy called me, and I drove over to Illinois to meet him. And he offered me a job on the spot. And he's like, you're exactly what we're looking for. So Greco is it? Yeah, Agreco. Okay, and what did they do? They do same thing, uh, kind of power HVAC generators and chillers and stuff like really? that, but more industrial. Back then, it was more industrial. Um, so I went there for a few years, um, and then I'd always wanted to be at Sunbelt, though. Like, Sunbelt was where Why? I always wanted to be. Because I used to be Sunbelt's largest customer when I was in, uh, when I lived in Fort Worth, when I was Okay, when Belfort. you were restoration. Yeah, I knew those guys really well. I knew that whole team, and... They were always just a really cool company, and you know, just I liked their culture. I liked everything about them, and it's where I wanted to be. And uh, they didn't have a spot for me. They were kind of in the downturn of 08 and 09. They were kind of shrinking as well, just because everybody kind of got squeezed back then. Um, and so it just wasn't the right time. Uh, and it didn't come around for a few years, but you know, it came around in 2012 and uh, 2013, I guess, is when I came back to Sunbelt. And the day I left Greco. Uh, Sunbelt called me that afternoon and said, hey, your resume just came across my desk. And I was like, really? I haven't put a resume in. And they were like, well, you need to come talk to us. So so you left without having something on a, like a new opportunity lined up. Yeah. You're just like, I have to leave here. 
Well, you know, they just, I get it. They just never paid me. It just it never. It, we were always negotiating. Every time time came time for commission, we were negotiating commission terms, and it just you never knew what you were working for. So yeah, that'd be tough. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah, it was tough. You know, and I've got a new family, and I had a new baby, and it was uh, we just bought a new house, and it was it was just too stressful. So yeah, seems tough. Yeah. So uh, when you went to Sunbell, is that your introduction into Mission Critical? So I didn't start Mission Critical. It was it was funny how I got to Mission Critical because when I started at Sunbelt, I was the national account manager for Belfour. Sunbelt wasn't doing very good with Belfour. I knew everybody at Belfour. Yeah. So they were like, help us build that business a little bit. And so I did that for a few months. Um, and uh, another guy who actually my mom used to work with had come over to Sunbelt, and he had started a division called Industrial Climate Control. Um which was chillers and generator or chillers and air conditioners and a lot of the same stuff I'd done at Agreco. So I was pretty hip to it. Um, so I went, they asked me to go to his team. So I went to work at his team and I was there for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years. Um, and then they started this mission critical division. And I was like, they kind of pitched it to me and I was like, no, not really what I want to do. It sounds like a lot of travel. And I had a pretty good gig. I was I was making decent money and I didn't have to travel a whole lot. And if I did travel, I just drove, you know, it was usually yeah. within a couple hours of my house. So if I wanted to be home, I could, you know, jump in the truck and get home. And uh, they were like, no, no, you need to apply for that position. So I called my brother, right? Because he was in the space. Talked to him about it a little what bit. What year was this? This was, uh, this would have been 2016, 2017. Okay. Where was he at at the time? He was at Clear Result, I believe. Okay. I think it was before he went to Schneider, so I think he was at Clear Result. Sure. So, um, trying to get some context because yeah. I was talking to him back in those yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, chatted with him a little bit, and uh, we were we were unsure of how that dynamic was going to work. You know, just because we yeah. are different guys, we run business different, but um, at the same time, you know, I think it was really good for us. Um, it had its hiccups, you know, just because we were interacting with the same people. So, you know, no, look, honestly, I didn't know you guys were related for yeah. years. Yeah. And it, it wasn't on purpose. I mean, it was just, yeah. we run in different circles a lot. Um, you know, it's gotten a lot closer now. Uh, we run in a lot of the same circles, but, um, it was, it was, uh, took that spot and started traveling. I traveled 230, 240 days a year for the first three years. What was the focus? Just trying to build our brand in the space, you know. Because you guys are the biggest now in the space, it seems like. Yeah, we're the biggest in the space for sure. So starting from zero, though, it sounds like you were there. Well, I think we did six million or something like that in the space. Um, but just as a byproduct of yeah. having done work with groups right. that were already using you for other right. verticals. Pretty much, Whiting Turner was pretty much what, you know, yeah. who we were doing business with. So, um, you know, and, and Dave Smith was kind of in that space. So me and him were pretty much connected at the hip for the first few years, and just running and gunning, just doing everything we could to kind of figure out the space. So know? who were you targeting back in those days? Like operators, enterprise? Inter electrical contractors and uh, GCs. I got you. Yeah, ECs and GCs are still, I think that's still our bread and butter. Is it really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess the operators don't go to you direct. They, You know, they're starting to. Are they? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, they're starting to. Interesting. For their for their owner owned equipment, they want us to do the maintenance on it because they don't have the staff to do the maintenance or the knowledge. They that can go buy it, but they can't maintain it. I mean, like you got to Sunbelt when they were they were already doing something. You were saying it was yeah, Whiting yeah. Turner was your primary client. And then you guys, how did that work? I mean, since you started building up because you guys are pretty massive now. So, yeah, I mean, so started. We really got into you know we had the hyperscalers that started really going aggressive. Um, 
and they didn't have a good plan on how to overcome all the equipment that they needed, right? And so we came up with a plan on how to do on-sites and how to do it successfully. We didn't, the first few weren't very great. What do you mean by that? What were, what so was we opened, we essentially opened a rental depot on the site so that you don't have trucks coming in every day. You don't have, you reduce congestion on the site. You can have everything on the site. So the sub can come right there and pick it up and take it into the building that's 200 yards away. They're not waiting on people to deliver it, just in maintenance. So we had technicians that were on site that's where they were stationed so they could you know instead of having something that's broke for four or five hours it was broke for 20 minutes right sure. so um it was just a lot more efficient in the was long that run, a it, standard practice or did you guys introduce we it? introduced it yeah it wasn't a standard practice and now you know i don't say everybody's copying us but um, that's a smart idea but it was uh it was cool i, I think we've got <clears throat> 16 or 17 of them going on right now around the country so you basically said i'm just going to bring everything to you i don't know what you need but when you need it i'll have it ready that's right it's pretty smart <clears throat> yeah because i guess it makes more sense People are going to use it if it's closed versus if it's sitting in your yard in another state or another county or something. Well, and, you know, you, you build a few of them. Um, you go through the process through a few phases, and you start – You get. we've got a lot of really good data about everything that's going to be needed at day 27, day 57, day 77, sure. you know, day 177. You know, we know what equipment's going to be in that space because we've done so many of them now. So um, it just <clears throat> makes sense where we can scale up and scale down and bring stuff in and out on off hours so it doesn't um, disrupt the site. I mean, you talk about having three, four, five, six different rental companies bringing semis into the site and having yeah. to get escorted. And they're not, you know, from a safety perspective, everybody's not badged in. They're having to be escorted. So all of our guys are badged. They've been through all the safety stuff. So it just made sense. I mean, it really just became How big easy. Is Sunbelt? How big is Hmm, I think we're chasing eight billion this year. In terms of like people, like how? Oh, eighteen, nineteen thousand in okay, the U.S. So where's it headquartered at? Where's Fort Mill, South Carolina. Okay, and then right, where's, right outside of Charlotte. And outside the U.S. Where's the headquarters? Is it? It's in the U.S. or is it the U.S. So Sunbelt Inc. is headquartered in in the U.S. Okay. And then we have Sunbelt UK, which is headquartered in the U.K. Okay, and how then we're expanding of, into Europe now. So. How how old of a company is it? Uh ninety one. Oh, so it's not that old then. 91, I believe, is when they kind of came out of the ground. Interesting. So yeah. they started in the Carolinas, you said? Yes. Yeah, East Coast, yeah. Then they ended up buying Nation's Rent back in the day. Like, 06, they bought Nation's Rent, and that really kind of exploded them when they bought Nation's Rent. Because that took them to the other coast? Well, it just kind of, it, it just quadrupled the number of stores they had, and it took them to the other coast, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What about, uh? okay, so you got there, and they were just... They discovered, hey, man, we're doing something in this space now. This is a little bit new. Let's figure out how to grow this. And you started really chasing down all the GCs and the ECs. Uh, and then you just started patching that together? Yeah. You know, I'm, so, you know, like I said, Dave Smith had been in the, he'd been in the space for, you know, a few years and kind of had started growing it and seeing where it was going. And the Rosadens and, and of sure. the world were kind of really dominating that space. And we had a good relationship with them on other fronts. And you know, wanted to be with them on the mission critical side. And so really just kind of hitched our wagon to a, a few different people that were kind of coming up through the space as well. And, you know, I, I got lucky. I'll be honest with you. I got lucky. You know, yes, I've met a lot of people and we've done some good things, but um, it's, you know, I've had a lot of people help me get there. You know I mean? Just sure. a lot of friends and, and people like you who've just, you know, that you get to know. And I think it's still a people business. It, sure. As automated as we are, Sure. And what we're trying to accomplish in the mission critical space, it's still a people business at the end of the day. And I think that's kind of what I'm good at. So So in that time, like what's been the greatest challenge for you 
as you evolved into just being a specialist within Mission Critical? My time. Yeah, my time was the hardest thing, you know, just because you're traveling. I mean, I was traveling, like I said, I was traveling 200 and something days a year. Um, and you just get burned out. I mean, you really, really do yeah. get burned out traveling that hard. And so, um, you know, had some conversations with our leadership and uh, we've just recently put a team together. So we have a whole Mission Critical team now um, that kind of helps us. It, it, they, they're more regionalized. And so they can really dig into those specific projects. You've got all these colos coming up too right now. So the colos are a big focus for us because they're smaller projects, but they're I think that they're just as impactful because you can pick up a lot more of them from our perspective. And, um, you know, yeah. those guys have a lot of capital behind them and they're cranking. Oh, for sure. And, and you know, now I think about it, I'm like, we contracted you guys mm -hmm. direct a few times. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess you have to kind of play on all sides. I mean, you have the whole ecosystem that you have to kind of sell into plus the enterprise and user and the operator. Yeah, yeah. So the pull through rate right through that ecosystem. I think the operator side of it right now is with the supply chain issues that we're seeing. Um they're coming to us a lot more because of lead time on engines, because of lead time on, on generators, whether it's switch you, gear, we transformers. transformers. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the problem is, is everybody is, we don't yeah. have, there's not enough fleet in the United States that's temporary to take care of just the mission critical space, much less the other $150 billion worth of normal construction going on. So, um, it's a challenge for us right now. So, you know, we've been a commodity for so long. We're now, we're not really strategic. a commodity. We're a strategic, integral part of making sure that your project's successful. And I think that that's a really different place for us to be right now. And it's kind of an exciting place for us to be as well. To speak to that, I'll tell you something that was interesting. I had a, like, I did a podcast. Uh, one of the first ones I did was like either Data Center Frontier or Data Center Hawk, both great podcasts. And um, they're asking me what we saw is a trend on the owner's rep side, because obviously in addition to what we do with DCAC Live, the Conference right. and the Revolution, uh, Overwatch Mission Critical remains the primary you know, focus for what we do. And um, we get to work in all the, you know, half our clients are enterprise, so we get to work with a lot of cool enterprise end users, but the other half are really sophisticated data center operators. Mm -hmm. So we get to kind of analyze and interpret those trends that we see. And I said, uh, in one of the questions that was asked, it was like, what do you see as one of the greatest trends? And I said, I, I think that I, I'm seeing the ecosystem is who kind of picks partners and crowns king right now, because think about it, right? If uh, if you're an operator and you're going head to head against two other operators in a market for a large program, only one of you can win, and um, that group that's going to win will most likely win based on their ability to show a very transparent or predictable path to delivering the product on time, right? It comes down to how good they are aligned with their partners, and if you're not aligned with your partners well you still may make it over the finish line, but you're going to pay a premium maybe to do that where you have groups like you that are like, look, I have a limited amount or a finite amount of these things that I could offer. And if some groups don't pay you well or treat you like shit or, you know, they don't partner with you in a collaborative way, you could be like, sorry, we don't have those available and you're going to give them to a group that is more yeah. collaborative and more, you know, partner, partner centric. Right. So that was my, my, like to speak to what you just said, I like being on this side of the industry right now because we work with a lot of operators and I was talking to one this morning, one of the biggest ones, and they were talking to me about like lead times, 50 weeks right now on PDUs. And I said, okay, well, I would hate to be in your space right now because how do you sell deals that have a life expectancy of 90 days and you have to guarantee that you're going to have this equipment ready for them? That means you're just basically purchasing a bunch of gear at risk and laying down deposits and manufacturers just to get ahead. Like if you haven't started buying engines now, for 2023, you may not have any. Are you going to have to rely on Probably you? Probably 2024, to be See honest what I'm saying? with you. 
Yeah. So if you don't have those on order now for deals that you don't even have in your hopper, right? Those are for deal. Like if you don't have that capacity, you're not going to sell it. So you're, it's not like the good old days where you're like, okay, you're going to sign a deal. I could get all my supply chain this fast and I could go my OFCI or my VMI is strategic so I could stack it and, and execute. Those days are over unless you're laying out a ton of capital, right? So even then it's, it's crazy. So we just did a town hall. So our CEO flew around the country and met with all of us and you know, that was a big topic of conversation was just our suppliers being able to supply us. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter how much capital you have. There's people that won't accept POs anymore because they know that they can't produce them. So yeah, the, the, the amount of money, I think people are realizing just because you have a bunch of money doesn't matter when it comes to supply chain because there's a queue. Um, can you move a little bit here and there, some stuff? Maybe, but... In the grand scheme of things, you're not going to move all of your suppliers just because you can pay more. And I think that that has been an eye opener for us from a supply standpoint. But, you know, trying to be super ethical and super transparent, like you were saying, with your customers that you're supplying, your team members, right? I mean, we try to be trade partners or team members sure. with these people because, um, you know, it's it, it really sits on our shoulders. And which is so weird thinking about it from the outside that... Rental equipment was never, I mean, yes, you always needed it, but it was never super important. Where now, it's, you, you can't build a data center without it. It fills the blind spots, right? So you guys were what we would ebb and flow into as we, you know, I was renting transformers from you when I was waiting for the mine yeah. to come in, right. right? So like I said, I think that now, you know, you guys get to kind of, you don't know it yet, but you get to influence who gets to win those large deals yeah. because that operator that you're supporting is going to get your services or your materials or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And that's all I was saying is we'd have groups that would be stranded on programs and then we would call suppliers that we've done a lot of work with and be like, hey, I know you always have extra, you know, they're always building a little bit more to obviously have some padding. I'm like, is there anybody that you could like delay for a little bit and we could take some of those things off your hands? You know, so you would horse trade. We were horse trading all the time. So that's a big key factor for us is trying to figure out who has what you, you can get because they get to decide, like, if your Starline is an example, like, you, you're like, nope, 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 yes, yeah. we'll give them to you. And like you said, it's it's not even a function of economics anymore. It's just who gets it. Everyone Everyone's standing in line. They get to pick whoever they uh, want Everybody's going, they want to do long-term leases on everything right now, you know? Hey, we need a 24-month lease on power because we can't get our backup, you know? And so that's been a... An interesting thing for me to have to kind of step back from a transactional rental to go look at it from almost like an enterprise rental where, you know, we're going to be leasing the equipment and maintaining Maintain a package it. for this customer so that they can go do yeah. their So job. you're selling services and yeah. all kinds of stuff. So it Labor does and all the stuff that goes with it. So. There's more channels, right? So it makes you guys have to get really creative. So do you see you as uh, Sunbelt? Because I know that they absorbed another big shop just recently, right? Uh, a load bank shop we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We bought Comrent um, yeah. just to increase our load bank presence. So we're the largest load bank provider in, in the world now. So yeah, you guys are monsters. Um, yeah. So that was uh, that was a pretty cool acquisition for us for sure. Um, more inventory to sell. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of funny. Yes, we have a lot more inventory, but their inventory was already spoken for, and our inventory was already spoken for. So now we just have twice as many problems. Really, is what it comes down to. I mean, it's good, but it's uh, we have a lot of now we just have. A lot more customers, you know, because what's, we can... what's the greatest challenge in that in that side of the industry? Fleet. Okay, but like to that, is it having not enough widgets, or is it that they're not? How many do you have? Other sitting there in a warehouse because they're broken, they don't have the parts to fix it, or 
Yeah, not not as many as you would think. Um, we do have some. I think our biggest challenge in that space is educating customers that you can't call us a week out. Like, we need 90 days. Like, you have to be on a schedule because we're pulling stuff off rent for one day, servicing it, and it's going right back out the door to another job. I mean, it's, it's turning that fast just to try to keep up sure. with demand. And so the guys that call us and say, hey, I need 5,400s for next Tuesday – yeah, you and 20 other people do, but we don't have them. I'm sorry. I guess the barrier to entry, it's not like there's a lack of pent-up demand for the product. It would be someone that has the capacity to go out and buy a bunch of stuff right now and have to wait a year, two years to get all their stuff, and they could lease it as they go. But once you're in the game and you have something, then there's an opportunity there, it sounds like. Right? I mean, uh, I think the supplier that most people use, uh, you know, the ASCOs of the world, I mean, they're three years out right now. I mean, their 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 inventory's bought for the next three years. So good lord, to to get into that space, you're you're a couple of years out before yeah. you can even. That's tough. Think about getting it because people like us have already bought everything that they can produce for the next two years. That's so. unbelievable. Well, that's interesting. So you've been there. What's your what's the thing that you've enjoyed the most? Ah, uh, the people. I mean, I like the culture. Like, I think the mission critical space has a specific culture that you don't see in other construction markets, you know? I mean, I've been in some of the other, you know, restoration and remediation and stuff like that. And, um, you know, you've got a, a younger crowd, if you will. I mean, I say younger, I'm, I still consider myself young. But, you know, you've got the, the 50s to the 20s crowd, and they're all just hustlers, you know? Yeah. I mean, everybody's just grinding, and they're all really smart people. Um, and most of them are really interesting, you know what I mean? So I think that... The people aspect of it, because I, you know, I'm, I'm a people guy. I love people, so I think that that has been the one of the coolest things of all of it is getting to meet guys like you and Jesse, and you know, yeah, the no, 15 to... or other 20 of us that are, you know, pretty tight knit group, you know. So I think that's yeah. the cool part of it. I tell people, I'm like, man, we are in the greatest industry. It, what I feel is one of the greatest times, and it does have the greatest people, right? So a lot of my, I, I'm really close with some guys that I wrestled with in high school or served with in the Navy, and. But I'm I'm also developing some of my best friends that are in this space that I get to hang out with and yeah, different phase of your life, right? Yeah. So uh, I I got to tell you, like I I think that this industry is a uh, is an oyster for people that are just getting out and they're not sure whether they're getting out of the college or out of the military and they're like I'm not sure what I want to do. You can't pick a bad job in this space, you know. Like just get in the game and get on the field, and then if you don't like what you're doing, if you don't want to be behind the home plate and you want to be in the outfield, go find a job that lets you do that. There's Right. Ten other, there's 10 people out there that will hire you to go do that. Yeah. No doubt. So what's the greatest challenge for you guys? You guys having a challenge hiring people? We are. I mean, just like everybody. Yeah. I think we've got 1,400 open spots right now. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, the trades is what's hard for us, you know? I mean, the, we need technicians. Technicians are really, really tough for us to find. Truck drivers, hard for us to find. I mean, we're the 22nd largest trucking company in the country. <laughs> really? And we're a rental company, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's, how, that's, many trucks, that's how many uh, trucks we have on the road. And so um, trying to find... You know, that, that type of labor is really, really tough for us right now. Sure. It's um, tough for everybody. Yeah. There's a lot of growth in this space. So, like, you know, you have groups, these the largest electrical contractors in North America, like, I need to hire a 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to be tough, right? And there's only so many people that are in the trade schools, which is why I'm a big advocate for hiring transitioning veterans. You know, I think I, I was just, you know, we live in a small town, right? We live in Blanco. And they don't have a shop class in junior high anymore. Like, yeah. How much stuff did you learn in shop? Like oh, yeah. that's where you learn to work with your hands and you learn what you end up a screwdriver to hold and sure. you know, you learn all those basic knowledge that you need to figure out if you want to go be in a trade, you know? And um 
you know, being that we're in Texas, you know, I was just talking to some high school that had some high school kids at my house um, a few weeks ago. And, you know, a couple of them are going to go to welding school. They want to go be welders yeah. on the pipeline because they think they can go make a bunch of money there. And I'm like, you know, you can be a welder in the data center business, probably make just as much, if not more. And you're not out in the middle of a pipeline. Oh, um, sure. And, you know, I think so. I think from a mission critical perspective, you know, education, I know that's a big part of what y'all do and I, and us too, you know, we hired Shane McKenzie and, and uh, he goes around and talks to high schoolers and colleges and veterans and that's kind of his deal is to try to pull, um, pull people into what, not just the construction industry, but, you know, the mission critical industry and, and, and all that. But I think our high schools is a lot of what we're failing at when you're talking about being short in the trades because you've been told for as long as you can remember that you need to go to college. You yeah, know? exactly. I, it's funny you say that too, because right now, I mean, I, I was talking to JT and he's telling me about electricians that are making a quarter million dollars a year. And I'm yeah. like, most, if you think of most of the, there's a lot of guys I know that never, you know, they're very successful in this space, never spent a day on campus of a college. And I have that same conversations with my kids and their friends. I'm like, you could go right into the trades and there's so much demand there that it doesn't take long. As long as you like working with your hands and you like the work, right? So I think that, um, you know, we grew up in the same generation where, you know, you go to high school or go to school and get good grades, go to college, yep. do well, and then you get a good job and you make good money and then you're happy type of thing. But the reality is <laughs> there's so much more the world offers now that you could still, you know, be significant in what you're doing and bring value to whatever you're doing. You don't have to necessarily go to school to get it. Right. So like I have a kid that just graduated high school. He's going to college. But it was very clearly put to him. I'm like, look, if that's what you want to do, then do it. I think it's great. If you don't, there's a lot of opportunities in the trades, and especially on the electrical contractor side, um, mechanical. I mean, they just can't find even low voltage structured cabling. We have a, you know, you're talking about how you're a logistical company now that is in addition to renting, right. you're a trunking, and you know, you do those things as a byproduct for your own scalability and growth. We did it for ours, where I had to go out. I mean, I was your former Navy, so when I came out, you're an ET, I'm an ET, and. Uh, you know, there's companies like Bradley Morris and Orion, and those were the most prevalent. They were finding the you know military candidates coming out and placing them. There's a couple other smaller ones. You know, people kind of spin off and start their own, which is great. Um, we used a bunch of those groups to staff our growth, right? So we went from two people to, you know, between 40 and 50 right now, I think. And the reality is, is we were hiring recruiters for that. And, and then paying them a lot of money to go find those people. Finally, it just didn't pencil as well if I went out and hired my own recruiters. And I did that much like how you guys got into the trucking industry, right? Because it was the easiest way to guarantee something. For me, I went out and hired dedicated recruiters that were former military that have recruiting backgrounds in the military, but they normally went and took jobs as a recruiter for a general contractor or something right. else. And I was like, I need you to find more people for us. As a byproduct of that, we end up finding almost a surplus to support. So we had our own needs, but we'd find people that maybe they didn't support us or they weren't the right fit for us, but they were a great candidate and we wanted to help them go find a new job. So we would make phone calls to these contractors be like, hey, we would just throw the resumes over the fence. Finally, one day I was like, how about we just do this? Why don't we just charge a very cheap rate for recruiting and and help be another channel to help transitioning veterans find a new job. But our focus isn't on the, the whole we're only focused on data centers, right? Right. Right. Because this industry, I think, has so much pent up demand. I mean, according to what you read, the existential threat of this industry is that there's just not enough people to support the growth. There's two thousand people coming out of the military every month. 
some of them have backgrounds like you and I, yep. and they just are, they're hungry. They just need an opportunity and they'll hustle. Right. So if you can find those, those people and marry them up, you know, if we could help do that, that aligns itself with our mission as a business, right? Our mission is a business like yours, right? We love helping our clients, some, you know, unleash all these emerging technologies. But, um, we also really like having the opportunity to find a place to, to park veterans right. to grow their career and have a new mission. We know that when we do that, um, especially like the combat soldiers, yeah. right? So we're on a, you know, you and I are on a fleet. You yeah. hit general quarters, it sounds like once. Yeah. I, uh, I got to do some cool stuff too, but we're not normally at the same level of danger that those no. guys are at when they're getting shot at all the time. Th this space, I said this on another podcast once, but I have learned that some of the best employees that I have are the ones that have been pressure tested in combat because they're so much more mellow. You know, like, yes, the con, like this is a very, you know, you know how intense these construction projects are on the data center side. I mean, you could be over budget, but you could never be late, you know? Um, and, you know, the other KPI is you gotta make sure you're sending everybody home every day. No one's getting injured, you know, right. safety's a factor. Right. It's the number one factor, but those, those projects, it's only a matter of time until something goes wrong. How many times have you been called with an emergency because they blew up a UPS during commissioning or something, right? And you're like, okay, I'm scrambling. All the time. All the time. All the time. So you're in a triage mode all the time. Well, the people that are best suited for triage modes are those that are trained to go into combat where there's a battle plan, but then the bullets start flying and then they just have to figure out how to achieve the objective, you know, regardless of the, the collateral da damage or, you know, the casualties right. that happen throughout the strategy. And, um, you know, Marines and Army guys seem to be like, I have all kinds of 11 Bravos on my team, bullet sponges. They weren't ETs, but they really, really do well in high stress situations. They, they just moderate their, their emotion so well that they're able to power through those challenges. And that's what happens on a construction project. Yeah. But for me, it really opened my eyes and said, look, you don't have to hire Air Force power pros and maybe nukes and you know, all these things. There's a whole slurry of people that come out of the branches that are hungry. Like you could be, uh, I, the first Ovita candidate we ever hired, Overwatch veteran and transition apprenticeship was an aviation boatswain's mate. And she had launched like 150,000 planes off the top of a carrier deck. Now she worked for us, but we started a recruiting company. And she, imagine you come from an aircraft carrier, that's five, 6,000 people. Yeah. And now you're at a startup with, at the time we had like 20, right? Not a, that's a huge shift for someone coming from a carrier versus someone coming from a smaller ship. You're on a 600 person, mine was 110, 112 people. Right. So I said, well, let's go find you a bigger ship, you know? And we placed her, she's actually at Rosedon now, right? But the reality is, is we feel really good that we helped introduce this talent that otherwise would have probably never found their way into this space and then found a new mission or a new purpose for them. And they, even if it wasn't our shop that was the right one, as long as it stays within the vertical, we're like, hey, go work for one of these groups. So, you know, helping, helping groups like yours um, solve labor problems, that's our biggest challenge right now too. That's all we provide is labor. Yeah. So finding ways to translate what these people are doing as they transition out and then figure out how to help navigate them. Because I don't think anybody had a roadmap for you or you wouldn't have been working at a, at a warehouse, no. you know, for 12 bucks an hour. How do we help more people transition into a, not a more meaningful job because those jobs are great too. Right, but a job that allows them to feel like they're doing something significant, like like right. launching planes off carrier decks. Well, you know? and I think you get that team atmosphere too, right? And that's one of the, like talking to my son, like that was, that was one of the reasons he chose the military was because, he played football his whole career and, he liked the team atmosphere of a football sure. team, and you know, 
he, college isn't that way. You're kind of on your own. Going sure. to trade school, you're not really that way. You're on your own. So it, that, I think that's what drew him to the military was that team atmosphere yeah. and having that tribe. And I think coming out, that's one of the first things that you miss is that you don't have anybody around you anymore. You're all on your own. And so yeah, it's true. I think, you know, if you can put them with a team, whether, you know, somewhere in this vertical, we've already talked about the people and how great the people are. Now they have that support system around them again, and they're not on their own. And I think it's uh, it, it's where they thrive. It's just trying to create another channel for them to discover when they're yeah. going to taps, you know, where they're, man, most of these, a lot of these guys we're talking with now are 30, 60, 90 days out, right? But I wasn't looking at that stuff when I was 30, 60, 90 days out. I was deployed all the time. I was still overseas, right? Right. I was like, I was like, guys, I'm not thinking about any of these things. When I came out, I went right back to school, you know, figured out something because I'm like, at least here I'm moving forward still. I don't know what I want to do yet, but at least I know I'm doing something that's still moving me forward, right? So finding something, that's it. It's just trying to figure out how to land into something until you find what you really want to do. Yeah. So are you happy with the, the shift that you made? Obviously, it sounds like you're crushing yeah. it over there. Yeah, that's great. You know, now that I've got a team, it's it's actually fun again. I'm you know, I'm having fun again. Um, you know, I got to handpick the guys that and they were internal guys, but they were just rock stars that I'd become really close to over the years. Um nice. and they understood the data center space because they had, you know, one of them is, you know, up in the Midwest, you know, up in Iowa, Nebraska area and so he's been entrenched in that for the last few years and then my other guy was out of Phoenix and uh He's just a good dude. They're both just really great guys. And so, um, you know, we're bringing a few more on, but uh, it's hard candidate, you know, somebody that I can deal with every day and, you know, somebody that uh, that kind of understands our culture and what we're what we're going after. So it's it's fun to build that team. I think that's why I'm having fun again is watching those guys grow and, and teaching them kind of the things that I've learned over the last five or six years. Um, I think that that's the fun part of it is being able to transfer knowledge, you know. Work yourself out of a job. But you're sitting on the front lines, right, of a lot of this stuff. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in the industry right now? Um, you know, I think it goes back to – it seems like it's getting faster and faster. Everybody wants to build more faster. Um, you know, uh, the square footage just keep getting bigger. The megawatts keep getting bigger. Everything, yeah. you know, the density keeps, keeps increasing. And um, how do we keep up with that? And, you know, not not just an industry, but – being personal, like how do we Sunbelt keep up with that? And I think that that is one of the hardest things, you know, the first, most of my mission critical career at Sunbelt has been chasing hyperscales, um, which was pretty easy. There was one or two that started every couple of years and, you know, yes, it was long sales cycles, but you could kind of keep track of that. Now, I mean, we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of projects going on at all different varying sizes. And so trying to keep your arms around that right now is, and there's a new one that starts every day, it seems like, you yeah. know, or every week at least, you know, that you start hearing talk of another one that's coming down the pipe in 60 days. So um, I think that's been one of the challenges of trying to keep up with that. And I think that having a team has really helped with that. And then, you know, uh, from a trends perspective, people are going to keep pushing until the dam breaks. And, you know, I don't know how long the dam will hold from, we don't have enough supplies as it is. And so that's, one of the concerns is, does the bottom drop out of it at some point, you know? And that's mm -hmm. probably one of the things that scares me the most is, you know, we go from doing this much to this much because it's just physically not possible, right? We don't have the supplies to do it. And, um, you know, if you'd have looked at this two years ago, you're like, there's no end in sight. Or now you're like, probably not an end, but there's going to be a plateau at some point is what I feel like. So 
I don't know. I don't know if I agree. I'll tell you, I, I do agree that there's um, – demand will always probably exceed what's available. Yeah. But I do think that we haven't seen really what the byproduct is of the adoption of technology once AI and AR and VR are omnipresent in everything we're doing. Like when this becomes like a Google Glass or Apple, right. you know, whatever it is, and it aggregates even more data, like – I don't see the demand for technology reducing enough to allow this plateau to ever exist. I think that you're going to see. I think it's from a construction. I'm not saying from a technology perspective. I'm thinking from a construction perspective until we can get more factories open, we can get more bus busways and, and load banks and generators and all of the things that we're trying to produce to put these things together. You know, we're on this crazy trajectory right now. And at some point I feel like it's going to have to level out to right set before it cake takes off again is, you know, I don't think it's ever going to drop. I don't see it dropping, but I, I just, it's going to have to level set so that we can get caught up. Because right now, like you said, you're waiting 24, 36, 50 months for some things. And that's bananas. It's crazy. Like, I mean, it's not sustainable. I would not want to be on the operator side right now because that just seems like that's, that's where all the pressure's at is on the procurement of the gear. I wouldn't want to be a manufacturer right now. Well, I mean, they're making money hand over fist, but. You have to say no to a lot of people. And you're getting hollered at every day. Yeah, I could see that. Well, like, if you were to, uh, like, what's advice that you give to people? You don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. A lot of times you'll learn a lot if you just shut up and listen. Because there's a lot of other smart people in the room, too. So, you know, I even tell my guys, like, just be nice and just listen. Like, if you just listen, people will tell you everything that you want to know if you just listen. So, um, and don't overwork yourself you can get burnt out real fast because there's as much work as you want to go get you can go work seven days a week 18 hours a day sure chasing everything you can chase trying to build every relationship you can build and it's a marathon it's not a sprint and so you know i i sprinted for many years when i first started and um i mean my family paid my health paid everything paid right just because you're going yeah. and going and going and going sure um, and so, you know, I'm real cognizant with my guys to tell them just don't burn out. Don't try to eat an elephant in one bite. You know, yeah. you can't do it because it's a big world that you're in now. And, you know, we're playing with silly dollars and it's crazy. You know, there's crazy schedules and crazy money and everything's crazy. But just take it one day at a time and don't don't sacrifice your yourself and your family for, you know, the greater good. No, nah, it's good advice. What uh, what other like. Anything else that you want the listeners who don't know you? And I mean, I didn't know you. I mean, I knew you for a long time, but I didn't know that you were Ross's brother for the longest time until one day something like, yeah, that's Ross's brother. I'm like, no, that's Aaron. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, that's. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, yeah. The, the last we're all name. Johnsons. Yeah, we're all Johnsons. Uh, <laughs> such a common name. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's, a, it's an adopted name, matter of fact. I don't even know what our real name Really? Yeah, Jones, maybe. I don't know. I can't remember. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a while. Johnson works just as yeah. fine, right? I like Johnson. I've been a Johnson as long as I've been alive, right? So good for you. Yeah. Um, no, man. I don't. I don't think so. Um, I think we're in exciting times. You know, yeah. I think. I think that's the cool thing um, is that we're in really exciting times, and uh, even with all the doom and gloom with with the supply chain and everything, I think that um, if there's a will, there's a way. You know, you just yeah. gotta go figure it out well what's one last thing as we bring this thing home and we close this out what's one more thing that you want maybe the industry to know about sunbelt that they don't know you know we're here to help i mean uh, you know our, our motto is we make it happen so i think uh no matter what the challenge may be you know we're always expanding into new technologies you know we're in the, some battery 
uh, some battery storage technology right now to try to reduce fuel. Sure. Fuel's so high, so um, we're into solar, you know, solar light towers now. Um, so just our, uh, you know, our ESG perspective of our company, I think, is is one of the fastest growing parts of our company, and um, we're always looking for for new ideas. And so, just because we don't have it today, doesn't mean we won't won't have it tomorrow. Um, you know, I'm, I think a good example of that is we just bought Mahaffey Tent, right? So it's called Sunbelt Structures now, Temporary Structures which is one of the oldest, largest tent companies in the U.S. Nice. And it's just trying to give everybody a turnkey solution, right? People have always come to us for everything, and I think, you know, we keep adding these bolt-on acquisitions. That, as long as they need it and they find value in it. That's right. So, you know, we can be a turnkey shop, and that's really what we're striving towards. So if people want to learn more about Sunbelt or you, how do they, how do they yeah, find Yeah, it's just sunbeltrentals.com, um, you know, and then I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Aaron Johnson. You got it. Um, and then, you know, we got DCAC coming up in September. I'm hey, ready. Listen, I think you guys have been one of our day one supporters. Since the day one. Yeah. Day one, man. I remember yeah. a couple of years ago, we were at Browsers Hall, and it was way too hot upstairs. Yeah, yeah. Like, listen, my sponsorship next year is going to include adding. It was like. I'm we gonna, added 80 tons. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> thank God, man. But listen, yeah. DCAC wouldn't be where it's at if it wasn't for friends and partners like you guys that have been, like, always in our corner. So Yeah, it's a great conference. I, it's one of my favorite conferences of the year, for sure. Nah, I appreciate that. I um. I have fun with that conference. I, I do it selfishly to learn as much as I can. So the people that are speaking are typically the ones that I'm like, it's not what they're talking about. It's just, I know that they, they move the needle in the space and I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear their philosophy or their thoughts on something. Right. Not because I may not have my own, but simply because it's just better to sometimes understand what theirs are to see if I'm off or if they're off or if I'm moving in the right direction, you know? So I hope that people come and enjoy that conference to learn more about the space primarily by learning more about the people within the industry because they're the ones that make the difference. Well, and I think the, the, um, the uh, focus on networking, I think, is really important at that conference. I mean, um, I don't know, two or 300, 400 people are there, and, you know, I meet somebody new every year that I'm there. And I think that's one of the cool things is that you get the time to actually make a meaningful impression and, and actually get to know somebody at that conference. And, you know, it, it is the anti-conference, but I think it is – it's a networking event as well that, that sure. y'all do a great job with. So, And again, I appreciate it. Thanks for your service. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for sharing your story. That's a pretty crazy story on uh, September 11th. Yeah. I'm going to have to go deeper into that one when we have some brown Yeah, water, we'll dig maybe. into it off there. But, um, and thanks for being here, and, and thanks for the support of DCAC. So it's, it's awesome to hang out with you, man. I'll see you in Orlando next week. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, man. All, All right, right. Take care. Thanks.